I have to say I absolutely detest interviewing politicians. Their whole job is to say nothing for as long as possible. Roger is a master at that skill, but Roger also wants to dazzle you. Hello and welcome to On Assignment. I'm Abby Wright here with my colleague and co-host Lisa Cohen. Hello, Lisa. Hi, Abby. Today, we are listening in on a conversation that took place after our first Film Fridays documentary screening of the semester. As you know, we run a documentary film series co-sponsored by the documentary program. We do a screening and then a conversation afterwards with the filmmakers themselves. So this season, we kicked off with the Netflix documentary, Get Me Roger Stone, which profiles the longtime political strategist and associate of our president, Donald Trump. Some might even call him the Svengali, who lives by what he calls Stone's Rules. As an example, here's one of them. Admit nothing, deny everything, launch the counterattack. Really, that's all of the rules follow along Wrapped those into lines. One, yeah. yeah. Stone himself has been a polarizing figure in politics ever since the Nixon administration, when he was the youngest person to testify in the Watergate grand jury. That's a real badge of honor. And since then, he has been credited or some say credits himself, for so many different moments in history, uh, cultivating Trump's political ambitions, for example. Right. And then he fueled the flames around a sex scandal that led former New York Governor Elliot Spitzer to resign. I remember that. And of course, he has spent a lot of time smearing Hillary Clinton. Most recently, he has been questioned about his involvement in the Russian hacking scandal that still surrounds the 2016 election. Yeah, so this film, which didn't start off that topical when they first had the idea, ended up, in a real stroke of luck for the filmmakers, turning into today's headlines. So there were three directors on this film, and they all came to the screening. Dylan Bank, Daniel DeMauro, and Morgan Peckme. And they spoke with Columbia J School professor Betsy West about the five and a half years that they spent filming Stone. Let's listen in on an edited version of that conversation. And just a note, you'll hear Dylan, Daniel, and Morgan all talking at various points. We won't identify them each time they speak. So let's, let's begin with how this film came together, because uh, you began the project long before anybody thought that Roger Stone would be playing a major role in getting uh, Donald Trump elected as president. Can you explain how you were so prescient and, uh, you know, what gave you the idea for the film in the first place? We made this movie over the course of five and a half years. Um, so it was a very long journey that we took with Roger. Um, I had been moderating a panel of political journalists here in the city and uh, Roger was in the crowd very much because he likes to cultivate journalists and, and build relationships with them so he can manipulate them. And I met him afterwards in the audience, and, and as I came upon him, I could feel all the eyes in the room on him and this kind of murmur around me, and, and I knew it wasn't because of me. Um, and so I had heard the name Roger Stone, but I didn't really know anything about him, but I was so intrigued. I went home and I read a profile uh, about Roger in The New Yorker by Jeffrey Tubin, and uh, just absolutely captivated. I immediately shared it with Dylan and Dan, who are my close friends and, and filmmaking uh, collaborators. And we saw in Roger the opportunity to encapsulate the last 50 years in American politics 
through this unique lens of a bodybuilding, pot-smoking dandy swinger who would be so intriguing to the audience that they would be willing to um, kind of embrace somewhat of a wonky subject. There was just this extraordinary um, wealth of, of archive and a story of such scope that um, we thought that he would be worthy of a documentary. Um, we never foresaw the Trump presidency, um, but you know what is uh, oftentimes good for documentarians is, is not so good for um, the world. Um, he's nothing if not a self-promoter. How hard was he to book? How did you approach him? Um, Roger loves to get attention. Um, and so Roger is certainly one of the main backroom dealers, but he's also one of the few people who's eager to go in front of the camera and brag about all the negative effects that he's had to him. There are positive effects. He was enthusiastic about the idea at first, or how did you? you know? Well, we promised to treat him fairly. Um, and we made it clear from the beginning that we were liberal filmmakers. You even he see him making jokes about it. But Roger loves to spar with people. I think uh, he agreed, and um, we felt the same way, that if it was just a pure hit piece, it would be boring and preaching to the choir. And if it was just a fluff piece, nobody would want to watch it other than the InfoWars crowd. So the idea of kind of almost taking us on and you know giving his propaganda to us and letting us insult him a little bit because we were liberal filmmakers the more we insulted him the more he liked it and uh, that kind of ironic dynamic was really what drove us how did the relationship evolve over the years i mean how hard was it to i mean he's the guy is an admitted liar he must have lied to you about things that you knew weren't true or whatever i mean how do you, how do you deal with that with somebody like this um, you know, we interviewed um, 110 people uh, about Roger, everyone of significance throughout the course of his life who would give us an interview. We interviewed him on camera about 65 times. We shot 600 hours of footage over five and a half years. So, I mean, I know Roger better than all but my closest friends and my closest family members. Um, so he, he actually was remarkably candid with us. Um, and, you know, he, yes, he, he certainly, uh, he lies, uh, oftentimes unabashedly, but he is oftentimes um, honest in a way that few people in politics are. Um, and I think that we, you know, we are so, um, we, we just know each other so well at this point that um, we disarm each other. But is that a disadvantage a little bit sometimes? I mean, you quote the guy, the Daily Beast commentator, who talks about how Roger's charm is in danger of distorting your view. I mean, did you feel like you were falling under his charm sometimes? Uh, no, I mean, we were always knew that he was an absolutely deplorable person who had done horrible things to our nation. Um, that being said, we wanted to really understand him. Mm -hmm. And yes, if you have a superficial relationship with Roger, you can be taken in. And there are many top reporters who would be embarrassed to, um, to re if we revealed, you know, where a lot of their their stories come from. I mean, we would see him float something that was absolutely ridiculous, and then we would see it on the cover of prominent newspapers attributed to, you know, an unnamed source. Um, so yes, he, he does have his way with, uh, with the media. Um, what we wanted to do was give him an opportunity to, to tell his own story, and the most horrible things said about him in this film are what he says about himself. Uh, and so rather than us imposing some sort of, um, you know, 
jaundiced viewpoint on the film, we wanted to give him an opportunity to expose himself. There is not a single question that you can imagine that we haven't asked him, and oftentimes many times over. But a lot of the questions that you think were like the really like tough questions, he just will grind you into a rhetorical like you know hole. And he is so adept. Like this is not a guy who gets tripped up, you know, by some question that takes him off yeah. guard. Often, what we thought would be the most offensive questions, he was the most eager to answer, and he's the things he was most proud about, like the torturers' lobby. You know, his response was, "I'm proud of it because I made a lot of money." So the film was released in April, but the Roger Stone story is not over. Um, but he's going to be testifying, I think, this month behind closed doors. With That's correct, a, on September 25th. On an intelligence committee, and it's you know all about whether or not uh, he was involved in Russian in interference in the uh, election. I mean, how much did that, did you consider including more of that in the film, or was the film just done, uh, you know, it sort of began to unfold later? I mean, how, how did you grapple with that, and, and uh, might you follow up? It definitely was in its very kind of nascent stage uh, when we were filming, you know, it was still kind of unfolding at that time um, and certainly s snowballed from the end of last year to, to now, of course, recently. Um, it was one of the last things we kind of struggled with putting in the film and making sure we got it right and the right balance. And uh, Betsy, we never like set out to make some sort of conventional biopic. What we were trying to tell was an origin story for the Trump phenomenon and for where we got here as a country. So we felt comfortable ending the story essentially with the election because it was a culmination of Roger's life's work. Um, so it was less about, you know, do we follow him until he dies? I mean, five and a half years was enough, you know. Um, <laughs> certainly, <laughs> if, you know, there, if there is an extraordinary next chapter, that's something that we might be open to. I, I, all hinges on Netflix at this point. They they own the rights to Roger's soul. So <laughs> the Netflix contract is so complete that if there are colonies on Mars, they own the rights to the movie being projected there. For the benefit of our documentary students out there, can you talk a little bit about the challenge of structuring 600 hours worth of material? I mean, how did you, as you said, you didn't want to make a traditional biopic. How did you? Think, come up with the idea of Stone's rules and, and you know, moving back and forth in time. I mean, how did the structure unfold? Um, it was something we'd always planned to shape it around Stone's rules uh, because Roger just shapes his life around them. And then we saw how the Trump candidacy and now the Trump presidency is in many ways shaped around that as well. But it was a moving target. Um, we never really knew exactly where it would end. And we were constantly changing the film and re-editing it as we went because the story kept on changing and really just it was just a snowball down the mountain. And we kept on expecting it to explode and uh, stop gaining speed and it never really has. When, when did you actually start editing? At what point in the election cycle were you already starting to edit this thing? I mean, we were filming for five and a half years, so you know, we were editing bits and pieces right. over time, trying to sell the movie, trying to raise money. Um, but basically, the beginning of last year, uh, we started editing. I started editing full time. It was just sh shortly thereafter we made a deal with Netflix, actually got full funding, full budget, and we hired other editors. But uh, there was a lot of storylines that, you know, we loved and that, you know, just kind of hit the cutting room floor.
because, you know, kind of Trump's story ended up just engulfing everything. Structurally, it, w it was very difficult because we were trying to jam, you know, five and a half years worth of footage into one film and had to kind of make a very long film and keep cutting it down and paring it down eventually where we realized, you know, entire storylines had to be kind of removed from the film. And you use so many news clips, uh, so, you know, so much uh, uh, material. Were you fair using those or were you licensing them? I mean, it's just a tremendous amount of material. For the most part, the modern stuff, we, we fair used it because it's, you know, it's easier to get high quality versions of that footage. Uh, for the, for the doc students, uh, archive.org, their TV news website, which just literally records, you know, 100 channels every day, and in 24 hours, it auto-transcribes everything. You could search keywords, and uh, it's probably the most useful resource a, a documentary filmmaker, even a journalist, has in, like, this modern age. So we got a lot of stuff off the internet from the, the recent stuff because we tried to stay, you know, within our budget. Anything that's older, we of course went the traditional yeah. methods of going to the networks, you know, finding Roger Stone on all these shows throughout the years and what have you. And of course, you know, getting uh, good quality copies of that stuff, you kind of just need to pay pay the pay networks for it, for it yeah. so you could get the masters. Yeah. Um, but we did we did a lot of of fair use and. If we did it, frankly, you know, we could have easily been paying, you know, half a million dollars or or much more just for the footage, because a lot of it is talent as well, and that's usually triple the price of a normal licensing fee. And sometimes if the talent is big, meaning like the news anchors, then they have to they have to approve it, they have to sign off, and uh, it becomes very expensive. At this point in the conversation, a few Film Friday audience members got up and posed some questions to the filmmakers. So you're going to hear some new voices. And in the first question, we're actually going to hear a voice we know, yours, Abby. So let's dive back in. I have so many questions about Roger and this film, um, but I'm going to try to limit it to two. First of all, I just really, I'm trying to understand what makes him tick, like what drives him. Is it, uh, is it a need for media attention? Is he purely um, ideological? That's one question. My main question, though, is to what extent is Roger Stone a Zelig-type character who takes credit for many events in political history that actually he was a bystander for, as Tucker Carlson said and others have said? I mean, how legit are his claims? Is he full of shit? What's the percentage there? Any information would be really helpful. <laughs> well, as Thank far you. as what, what drives Roger, it's, it's the thrill of the campaign. Um, and uh, driven by his tactic of hate is a more powerful motivator than love. Uh, he's really n n zeroed in on that uh, to great effect um, over the years. And uh, you know, we asked him, oh, if Trump's elected, would you want uh, a position in uh, the, the Trump uh, presidency, and he goes, oh, no, I'm not interested in politics. I'm interested in campaigning. And it's this real high that they get uh, from the, the intensity of election night and from trying to get people to repeat their propaganda on the street and kind of affecting people's minds and, and getting that mental control, that power. That's just like a real thrill for people like him. And that thrill is just only 
built up over time. He's never slowed down. He's never gotten bored of it in any regard because uh, the world never got bored of him. They're still listening, and they're still either furious at him or rallying behind him. The Roger that Dylan was just talking about was one that evolved over time. So he started off as a complete rabid ideologue, as he describes himself in the movie. He talks about his, his Hitler youth days. Um, and, but over time, you know, I think he became disillusioned and, and more and more cynical, and it devolved into this, when it all costs, destroy your enemies, that what is articulated by Stone's rules. As for the, the question about the, the Zelig, um, it, it, it really depends, right? So I, I personally think he had absolutely nothing to do with Elliot Spitzer's downfall. I think that, you know, we tried to expose that very quickly in this movie. Um, but he is usually more zealous to take credit for things that he didn't do, and he's more reticent to uh, acknowledge the really um, dastardly and duplicitous things that he's done. And he's been a lot more deeply involved in, in things that are not necessarily front of mind in his bio. And so, you know, the things that people want to take away from him, the credits, are usually so superficial compared to what are his really profound accomplishments like the creation of the super PAC, the creation of the mega lobbying, the, the destruction of the culture inside the beltway or to the degree that it could be destroyed. Um, you know, so those are all absolutely true. Obviously, Roger is a very sophisticated interviewee and a source. And almost every time you see him on camera, he looks extremely rehearsed and calculated in what he says just because he wants to have a certain sort of image. He just has that sort of personality. So when you're dealing with such characters, like, what's your strategy, you know? I, I've spent my uh, good portion of my lifetime as uh, a political reporter. I interviewed so many uh, politicians and elected officials, and I have to say I absolutely detest interviewing politicians because they are the most empty, vacuous, meaningless interviews, right? They, their whole job is to say nothing for as long as possible. Um, Roger is a master at that skill, but Roger also wants to dazzle you. Roger wants to bring you into something that excites you. He wants you to remember his interactions with him. And that's something where he is on all the time. Um, and so it's not that he is putting on a facade when he is on camera. He's just exposing a different part of himself. Um, we've seen, you know, the full, full gamut uh, of Roger. We've seen him at times where he was extremely low um, and, and when he was, you know, in, in his absolute glory. Um, a lot of it comes from logging the time with him, you know, just going to him day in and day out, mercilessly hounding him to film with him. We, we were really went through every single interview that Roger has given, like, and, and tried to approach him from different directions. I mean, the amount of research, the archival research that Dan did uh, was just absolutely voluminous. I mean, we have probed him so deeply. Like, at one point I made a timeline of Roger's life, like year by year throughout his life. What was that uh, wacky scene before the gay rights parade where he's in his uh, closet, half naked? What, what were those circumstances? It was kind of an odd shot. It was just me and Roger alone in his uh, bedroom <laughs> uh, with his shirt off. What actually, um, what happened that didn't end up making the film, um, 
he was trying to be like kooky and he's like we're going to the gay pride parade what shirt should i wear so he's like trying on all his different shirts you know Obama as like the Joker and says like communist or whatever or like I don't know like Sharpton as my homeboy Sharpton is my homeboy shirt and then he then he like totally chickened out and he like put on a regular shirt and for the actual parade so so kind of had to cut the scene. What has been Roger's uh, reaction to the film? Um, well, he uh, so the film premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival um, and. Roger came to the premiere, although he was 20 minutes late. Um, and, you know, we really had no idea how he was going to respond to it. He, he, like, joked in the media, he's like, I have two tickets, one for me and the other's for my lawyer. Um, and, and, you know, like, he's joking, but he's half joking. We didn't, you know, necessarily, we don't take his threats too seriously, but also not too lightly. Um, we really had no idea, and then after the film, he said, oh, "I'll have to see it again." But you know, it was—I uh, liked it. It was good. I thought—I thought it was fair. And then, you know, a week later, he's like, "It's the greatest political documentary of all time. <laughs> the the star is so handsome. He has the best suits." So he's been very much uh, behind the film. He he created his own Twitter account for the film, where he just mercilessly attacks anyone who says. Anything that offends he him. He calls it the official Twitter account. Yeah, the of official, the, movie. the only official. Get me Roger Stone page, and we're like so embarrassed, but like it's so clearly obvious that it's him, not us. So. Yeah. And we, we were certainly worried about. I mean, if Roger uh, decides to attack you, he'll put up posters in your neighborhood calling you a child molester. Um, and we were war warned that the Alex Jones Info Wars crowd would troll us, and that we had to get you know passwords that were a sentence long, and just be prepared to be. Uh, uh, flooded, and then their reaction was, we're in a movie, and it says we're important, and it's pissing off liberals. This movie's great. And uh, so that's kind of worked uh, for our advantage as well, because um, be things are so polarized that having someone like us call InfoWars bullshit is exactly what gives him power. What about the gross-out factor uh, with, did you guys ever kind of ruminate about whether or not you were giving uh, or about giving platform to somebody just espousing all kinds of hateful victim. We, we were definitely trying to walk the line of giving Roger a mouthpiece and not lionizing him um, because the irony is that Roger has been so effective in the shadows without um, an international spotlight like this uh, that our response was uh, sunlight would be the best remedy for that. Um, uh, but as we've seen, there's been many people who watch the movie and they think, oh my God, this is despicable. This guy is despicable. And then there's people, both liberal and uh, uh, conservative, who watch it and think, oh my God, I want to be the next Roger Stone. Um, he is able to get people to repeat what he says because it's hilarious. And you could be pointing out your hair when he says something. It's so despicable. It's just false. Um, but it's just so damn funny that you find yourself saying it, and that's part of how he manipulates people, and that's what Trump does all the time. He says something that uh, is just blatantly a lie. He said something different three weeks before, but everybody repeats it because he says it boldly and with a little wink in his eye. He does appear to be a little less excited when Trump wins than, or less animated than in other scenes that you've seen him in throughout the film, and I was wondering if 
there was tension between Trump and Stone by the time the election came and if he was fired, really, or whether he was just not happy about it. First of all, I mean, if you recall, uh, I mean, we were in Texas um, in Alex Jones's secret bunker with him filming on election day, and the um, the election, it really was called for Trump around 3.30 in the morning, and Roger had been on the air virtually continuously since 12 o'clock in the afternoon, so he was just absolutely exhausted physically, emotionally, just overwrought by the experience, and so catching him in that small, you know, pensive, satisfied smile was the, the kind of the, the most emotion that we could articulate from a cinematic standpoint. I, I mean, he was as shocked as anybody. That morning, he was buying um, impeachhillary.org. He was buying URLs anticipating Hillary's victory so that he could immediately smear her um, or uh, continue to smear her. I think, like everybody, um, you know, there's there's a handful of people in this country who can legitimately say that they knew what the outcome was going to be on election day. Roger was not one of those people, uh, and so I don't think he knew how to deal with it in the moment. I mean, he spent 29 years. He was literally the person who the germ of the idea in Trump's head, and to see it come to fruition. That's something that I think all of us would uh, have difficulty grappling with in the moment. You know, Roger uh, has has such a complicated relationship with Trump. Um, um, that being said, he is absolutely the person after Trump who most deserves credit for the Trump presidency, and he is one of the very few people who Trump genuinely trusts. He and Trump can talk on the phone. Roger knows how to speak exactly in a way that Trump can understand, and, and he also knows that Roger's not going to bullshit him, that um, I've, over all these years, Roger has earned the rare right to, um, to be candid with Trump. So you said you saw Roger recently. He's preparing to testify, uh, you know, in this Russia investigation. Um, so, I mean, is that his, his main activity now? What's, what's he doing? Um, Roger's main activity is making money and, um, and making the world a darker place. One of the things that we learned about Roger is that every time you go see Roger, like, what are you up to? He's got like five schemes. And, um, and people oftentimes point to Roger's failed schemes to show that he's ineffective. Well, what they don't realize is it's a percentage game for him. And if you're batting 300 as a dirty trickster, you are in the Dirty Trickster Hall of Fame. And so the seven times that his, that his um, dirty tricks fall flat, man, the three times he got you, he's shaped the course of the country. And so, you know, we don't understand that Roger's playing the long game and he's really seeing what sticks. Uh, and that's part of the reason he's so effective. The film really kind of portrays Donald Trump as the masterpiece of Roger Stone. And I was wondering if Trump was angered about that or if you heard anything. Um, Trump's reaction to the film? Has he seen the film, do we think? Um, <clears throat> we were hoping he would see it and tweet about how he hated it, but... Um, um, well, Stone... I, well, actually, I, I, I can speak to... Actually, Roger just told me this week that he has seen the, the trailer, um, but he has, he has not seen uh, the film, and I think that he would be infuriated by the film precisely for the reason you talk about. Like, so the fact that I think we show that Trump is um, Roger's Frankenstein monster... 
that would really upset him more than anything else. Um, not because we say terrible things about him, it's because he alone wants to take credit for his victory. Look like a puppet. You know, Roger ran the shadow campaign for Trump or, or maybe a foundational uh, campaign for about uh, two years where he met with Tea Party leaders all across the country. And it was a very brilliant strategy that Roger uh, had devised because if you remember when Hillary Clinton ran for Senate uh, in New York, she did this listening tour and she would go to these small towns and she was absolutely the biggest celebrity that ever been in that town and even people who hated her just like melted. Roger did the same thing with Trump by taking him to these small rooms in, in Kansas and in Nebraska and that's where he cultivated the goodwill of the people who became, you know, who were the Tea Party at the time and ended up metastasizing into the alt-right and, uh, and so, like he had laid the groundwork for a really long time um, for it for it to come together. And uh, according to Roger, right after our interview with Trump, uh, Trump called Roger and said, uh, "You shouldn't do the movie with these guys. It's a liberal hit beast. You should walk away." This is pretty amazing film. Very enlightening, as I said. Oh, thank you. Sobering, thank you. sobering, but Air I pulling. think very. Um, informative and probably necessary. So thank you very much. Thank you so much. Good job. Thanks again to filmmakers Dylan Bank, Daniel DeMauro, and Morgan Peckme for coming to the J School to discuss their documentary, Get Me Roger Stone. What a truly fascinating and disturbing look, one might say, at this key political player. Or is he? Right. That's the question. So it should come as a surprise to exactly nobody that Roger Stone has been back in the news recently. Really? Yeah. Just at the end of September, in fact, Stone was going around telling people that former Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort is expecting to be indicted by special counsel Robert Mueller. As we just heard in the filmmakers' conversation, Stone did testify in front of the House Intelligence Committee. They want to know more about his contacts with a Russian hacker involved in the DNC hacks. And frankly, so do I. His involvement there is because he made these tweets and statements back in 2016 that seemed to suggest that he had some kind of advanced knowledge of the WikiLeaks email dump. Right. His testimony was three hours long and took place behind closed doors. So we don't know what went on. I really wish it hadn't been behind closed doors. All we have to go on is what he says happened, and, you know, we know how reliable that is. So afterwards, Stone told reporters he had refused to identify the person who was his go-between with WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange. And, of course, he came out of the jury saying that he had denied any Russian collusion. An evolving story. Let's keep an eye on it. So let's pivot now to a few recommendations. Lisa, what have you seen or heard lately? Well, I'm actually going to give a plug to another of our Film Friday's uh, documentaries, Let It Fall, which is uh, a look back at the 1992 L.A. riots after the Rodney King decision. And uh, it was directed by John Ridley, who uh, is best known for winning an Oscar for his screenplay, 12 Years a Slave. And our own Jean Marie Condon, who's a J School grad, and both of us know her for many years, it's it's just such a gorgeous film. It uh, it really takes you back, and they found all of these people that were there, and that tell their stories so poignantly and so beautifully, and builds to this incredible crescendo. It's just it's it's I recommend it to everybody. Yes, it's so amazing. Um, 
I would like to recommend a front line I just finished watching about North Korea. It's the latest front line. You can see it online. Um, North Korea's deadly dictator, which uh, tries to answer the question, who killed Kim Jong-un's half-brother, if you remember when he was assassinated um, in Kuala Lumpur, and what that murder reveals about the North Korean leader and his regime. So it's really interesting and fleshed that story out for me a lot. And in these times, it's so important for us to understand a little bit more about this very mysterious part of the world that Definitely. Is, we're coming face-to-face with. What else do we have coming up this season on the podcast? Well, funny you should say that because actually one of our next ones is going to be the uh, conversation with John Ridley, Jean Marie Condon, and Professor June Cross after Let It Fall. So I'm really looking forward to that. In fact, just to let you all know, if you want to attend any of our Film Fridays, you just have to go on to the events calendar online at journalism.columbia.edu slash events, and you can come eat free pizza, watch our films, and hear these amazing filmmakers talk about their work. This episode of On Assignment was brought to you with the support of the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and Columbia Journalism School. It was produced by J-School grad Miriam Sitz with the assistance of our special programs coordinator, Millie Christy DeVoe, and our own DuPont fellows, Katia Tubman and Ingrid Holmquist. Our music is by Dylan Nowak. Follow us on Twitter at OnAssignmentPod and visit us at OnAssignmentPodcast.org. You can subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode of On Assignment.